Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Dan Healy, our guest today, is Professor of History at the University of Reading in England. His book, Bolshevik Sexual Forensics, explores the history of Russian and Soviet forensic medicine. Early Bolsheviks gave forensic doctors, most of whom had trained under the Tsarist regime, new authority in the regulation of sexuality. In an attempt to modernize Russian sexual relations, lawmakers defined new ways of seeing sexual crime and disorder in the Bolshevik state. They reformed legislation that dealt with sexual crime and violence and drew on physicians and psychiatrists as the new scientific experts to describe and diagnose sexual disorder and draw the line between criminal and legal behavior. Healy compares sex crime investigations from Petrograd and Svetlovsk in the 1920s to the numerous publications by forensic doctors and psychiatrists of the pre-revolutionary and early Soviet periods. Although revolutionaries had a vision that the new Russia would be a place in which men and women were equals, Soviet medicine's emphasis on biology and physiology left no room for ideas of sexual self-expression, and law and medicine failed to protect women and girls from sexual violence. Listen as Dan Healy tells us about his new book, Bolshevik Sexual Forensics, Diagnosing Disorder in the Clinic and Courtroom, 1917 to 1939, published by Northern Illinois University Press in 2009. Good morning. Welcome, Dan. It's a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Um, I wonder, uh, and we'll be talking about your book, Bolshevik, Foren- Bolshevik Sexual Forensics, Diagnosing Disorder in the Clinic and Courtroom, between 1917 and 1939, um, which came out with Northern Illinois University Press in 2009. And I have to say, I am a big fan of your first book. Um, I make all of my graduate students read it. And whenever they falter, I tell them that they should go and read your introduction. (laughs) And they should read it over and over again. So um, I'm really excited about having this conversation about the next book. Um, and I wonder whether you can start by telling us this very intriguing story in your acknowledgement that kind of talks about how you got to the topic in the first place. Well, um, this actually, this story of, of um, uh, my visit to the Saratov uh, uh, School of Forensic Medicine within Saratov University, Saratov State University, um, that's uh, took place actually after I began this project, and I um, uh, I took the train 16 hours to Saratov from Moscow. It's uh, a long way, and uh, uh, and turned up at the uh, the School of Forensic Medicine and said I was writing a history of, of aspects of forensic medicine in the early Soviet period, and I'd been inspired by some of the um, uh, protagonists in, forensic, in Soviet forensic medicine who came from that school. Uh, and so they were very excited by that, and they invited me in to the institute and gave me um, the run of their library and introduced me to their students and so forth. But every Wednesday when I would go in, 
uh, I would um, be confronted by a very strange scene. There would be a group of students um, clustered around the center of this, this central hall, which had a kind of museum display cases and so forth. But on the floor, in the middle of these students, would be a corpse. A the real, corpse would be on the floor. Uh, on the floor. That's uh, really uh, funny. A real, I, was, I wanted to say a real live corpse, but of yes. course, far from. <laughs> and um, the students would have, um, the, the instructors would have placed other props around uh, the corpse. And the students would effectively be um, coming cold to a, a, a mocked up crime scene or a scene of an unexplained death. And they would have to uh, uh, begin to... Uh, work through the logic of how you explain a death from uh, material signs mm-hmm. on the body and and clues around the body. I mean, they had such things as um, empty vodka bottles, uh, um, fake plastic uh, um, vomit, and and that sort of thing <laughs> placed around the body. I, I you know I I uh, shudder to imagine what the loved ones of these particular corpses might have thought had they. Um, had the opportunity to see this, but right. there you are. The corpses came from uh, uh, the uh, mortuary downstairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the city mortuary happened to be located in the same building as the Forensic Institute. This is often uh, where you find mortuaries in, in former Soviet cities. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was, if you like, a steady supply of corpses for every Wednesday scenario. So That's, I got, got used to seeing them. <laughs> did they have uh, corpses of both genders, or was it always men? It seemed to be men, mostly. Uh-huh. Um, now, I don't know whether that was a, a, a decision about dignity or whether that was a decision about um, uh, um, that, that reflected the, uh, the very high death rate among um, middle-aged and older men. Yeah. Um, in, in Russia at the time. This is going back to um, 2000 when I was in Serato. Yeah. So, uh, and interestingly enough, too, during the time I was in that institute, we had a steady parade of um, uh, living subjects coming through the institute who were being examined because of their uh, claims for welfare benefits based on the fact that they were World War II veterans. Interesting. So their wounds were being examined, uh, the yeah, scars okay. and that sort of thing, and their their claims were being reviewed by the institute staff. Yeah. So what led you from the topic of homosexual desire in revolutionary Russia to the um, forensic issues? Well, essentially, I um, worked when I was writing my book about homosexuality in Tsarist and Soviet Russia. Um, I, uh, I began in the early 1990s wondering, well, what sort of sources can I use? And after scouting about, I realized that principally my sources were going to be either legal or medical. Mm-hmm. And in particular, when I got to Russia and began doing my archival research for the project, and this was my, my, my uh, first book, my doctoral book, right. I... Um, I found that, that well, the legal sources were um, were fragmented, and that the medical sources were often more interesting. 
um, in certain ways. Uh, they had more interesting narratives sometimes, and uh, and they were, um, I, I hesitate to say sympathetic, but they were more textured, mm-hmm. like that. So I began to be um, interested in the um, uh, intersection between the medical and the legal in um, Soviet practice and how that um, really seemed to structure the way that sexuality was perceived, sexuality was understood um, in the early Soviet period. And this seemed to me quite different from what we knew about the sexual revolution from um, declarative texts. Mm-hmm. Um, things like uh, Alexander Kollontai's novels and uh, the decrees of the Soviet government and mm-hmm. um, and not just the novels of Kollontai, but the novels of a whole swathe of, of um, mostly secondary, second-rate sort of authors who wrote mm-hmm. about the sexual theme during the 1920s when discussion of, of the sexual revolution was at its height. Um, so I so it was about medicine and law and their interaction. I, I thought that there was uh, more room for investigation there. And I'd been very captivated, actually, by court records and what one could do with them mm-hmm. um, in the first book. In the, the case of homosexuality, it was very difficult to find um, full court records of uh, actual prosecutions of homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, um, Moscow, in Moscow City court records, I remember um, finding not not the whole trial record, but just um, a two-page or five-page uh, sentencing documents that summarized the case and gave the sentence that right. the got. And those were uh, bound in, uh, you know, they were printed on onion skin kind of duplicate copies and, and bound in um, sort of foot-high sort of volumes. And I remember I flipped through 11,000 pages of those. Wow. To find eight cases. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 36 individuals in them. Yeah. Um, so that, that alerted me to several things. One was that there were um, plenty of cases of ordinary, of ordinary, of heterosexual rape. Yeah. Of the abuse of minors uh, in these same kinds of records. Yeah. That I was sifting through um, a, a, a fairish number of those to find my occasional sodomites. Right. Uh, so I knew that the records existed and it would just be a matter of finding enough of them yeah. uh, to assemble a kind of picture of um, heterosexual sexual disorder, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I fe- and I noticed, of course, as well, that um, forensic medicine was very important in um, the operation of those trials. Mm-hmm. That they provided a really important part of uh, part of the evidence for uh, police. That was certainly the case in the trials of homosexuals in the 1930s and 40s and afterwards, um, and it was already obviously there um, in uh, the uh, trials of, uh, of for heterosexual offences. Mm-hmm. So I knew that there was a kind of existing source base there, and I thought if I could develop um, an analysis of these sources, then I could begin to say something useful, perhaps, mm-hmm. about the way professions help to interpret the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. 
And in a funny sort of way, after I finished my book about homosexuality, I thought it's time to write a book about heterosexuality. Right. But what sort of book would it be? Yeah. <laughs> and in a sense, um, I knew because there would be trial records, um, I'd be able to assemble uh, a, a nice, chunky set of, of trial records um, around heterosexual offenses. Um, that I would be able to um, uh, say something different and interesting about actual practices um, around medicine and mm -hmm. actual practices around sexuality rather than raking over the old declarative texts that have been so much part of our discussion of the sexual revolution in Bolshevik Russia um, yeah. up until now. Yeah. So you open the book by kind of talking about the changes um, that come to sexual life and ideas about sexuality with the Russian Revolution, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so could you talk a little about a little bit about what those changes are, but also about continuities maybe that um, came from the Tsarist era? Well, it's interesting because the desire for change is actually one of those major continuities. Yeah. In an interesting sort of way. The revolutionary tradition is actually bedded down as a tradition well before 1917. Uh -huh. in a whole sort of, sort of two or three generations of uh, uh, Russian um, intelligentsia and Russian uh, political activist thinking about the relationship between the sexes. It's often posed that the problem is often not posed as a sexual problem, but as a problem of gender, as a problem, mm -hmm. a women question. Mm -hmm. And uh, women's equality is, is the central kind of problem mm -hmm. that um, leads to a discussion of sexuality among um, uh, the Russian radicals and, and uh, intellectuals before the revolution. So there's a long continuity already of imagining what, Uh, future sexuality or future uh, um, gender relations might be like. Mm -hmm. um, and that's even before you get to the, um, the, the last 30 years of the Russian regime, of the Tsarist regime, where um, there's a, a quickening of expert ideas about Uh, sexuality and gender that's also contributing to the discussion. So it's not just a political discussion about women's equality and about equality within marriage and about access to, um, they're not really talking about birth control or, or abortion very much um, before, the, before the late Tsarist regime, the last years of the Tsarist regime, but they're uh, talking about uh, women's sexual autonomy implicitly. Yeah various ways. They're imagining it yeah, uh, and what that might be like um, already uh, in, in you know, uh, Tolstoy's uh, short story, The Kreutzer Sonata, and in, and in other kinds of, of literature. That's, that's already being imagined and discussed what that means. Um, but then you have doctors, psychiatrists, criminologists, lawyers contributing to a wider discussion about um, Uh, uh, sexuality and how it should be understood, what its origins are, uh, how it might be regulated more successfully uh, uh, with the help of that kind of medical expertise. Mm -hmm. all that's already 
um, in a sense, on the table mm-hmm. bef- well before 1914. And are these experts that, the experts that you're describing at the moment basically in a larger dialogue with the same kind of um, emergence of such a discourse in European countries? Very much so. They're participants in international conferences and congresses uh, of criminology, of criminal anthropology. Um, They are, um, in the the last decade or so of the czarist regime, there's a burgeoning, a flourishing interest in uh, psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. um, And some of Freud's uh, most important patients are actually wealthy Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Sergei Pankayev, the, the Wolfman, for example, mm-hmm. so one of his most famous patients is, is, is a Russian. Uh, and um, uh, Spielrein, Sabina Spielrein as well, is mm-hmm. another very important patient uh, from, from Russia who incidentally goes back to Russia to practice psychoanalysis mm-hmm. in the 1920s. So you have um, a traffic back and forth between... Um, the two metropolitan capitals of Russia, St. Petersburg and Moscow, and um, the important capitals of where culture and, and science and medicine are, are being uh, discussed and developed in Western Europe mm-hmm. at the time. Um, there are uh, uh, there are a significant number, for example, uh, of psychiatrists uh, who um, I look at in one chapter of this book, um, psychiatrists whose, uh, whose training and formation is really um, in Germany or in Austria before the revolution. Yeah. Very many of them uh, don't simply train at home in Russia. They have to go for uh, a period, uh, like an apprenticeship, uh, of training under the great professors in Germany and, yeah. and Austria. So... Um, there is a transfer of knowledge to Russia uh, and also a circulation back from Russia to the West. Which, uh, yeah, that was my other question. I mean, basically, then once we get to the Bolshevik Revolution, um, now that we've talked about continuities, we can talk about differences. Um, what is specific to the way in which Bolsheviks perceive sexuality and the changes they want to see? And, you know, and so far as we can talk about an emergence of a particular Soviet sexology, what does that imply? It's very interesting because I think it has, in, in one sense, it has two sides. Um, one side is declarative and it's for the outside world. It's to show the world um, the way forward in um, uh, sexual regulation and sexual politics, really. And that's um, a kind of message that I think even today non-specialists who maybe teach um, Soviets, the Soviet sexual revolution as part of other courses uh, uh, on the history of gender or the history of, of science, I think that's the thing that they remember most. Yeah. This, um, the, the radical equality uh, of men and women within marriage is something yeah. that is, that is um, uh, particular about the Soviet sexual revolution, uh, neither, neither sex has primacy in, mm-hmm. in marriage. Uh, the radical, uh, uh, you might say, indifference to the inviolability of marriage uh, that the Soviets bring with their legislation that makes divorce a very simple procedure mm-hmm. and a very cheap procedure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, um, the shocking in 1920 
uh, legalization of medical abortion mm -hmm. uh, and uh, making it free on demand, uh, not to everybody in the country, but to certain insured groups in the country, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the, the legalization of abortion is um, uh, absolutely shocking. Mm -hmm. uh, vast waves of European opinion. It's one of the reasons why the Spaniards murder feminists during the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, 1936-39. They're um, aghast at the idea of um, women controlling their fertility mm -hmm. in, such a, in such a direct way. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're aghast at the idea of communists making it possible for medicine to assist in that process. So those are those are very radical reforms. Another radical reform is, of course, the decriminalization of male homosexuality, mm -hmm. which uh, is discussed from 1919 and, and is finally uh, enacted in 1922. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in uh, the Western European context, um, the only other country, that, uh, the, the main country that, that did this uh, in um, the 1790s already was, was France during the, the revolution um, when uh, it uh, decriminalized sodomy and a whole range of other offenses that were seen as essentially um, offenses against religion or religious mm -hmm. scruples rather than um, uh, significant crimes as far as the state or, the, or society was concerned. And um, between the 1790s and uh, 1917, the only other major European country that had decriminalized uh, uh, male homosexuality uh, was actually Italy mm -hmm. during, its, uh, um, during its unification. So, that was, uh, so it was a major advance, and it was noticed around the world as well. Mm -hmm. um, so these were, these were important aspects of the, of the Soviet sexual revolution that um, surprised, uh, pleased, shocked, amazed people mm -hmm. at the time. And they continue, I think, to inspire. Mm -hmm. in the sense that they were so in advance of what many Western societies could ex accept mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. There are there are all kinds of qualifications that one can add to this picture, uh, however, and that's I think one of the big messages of this book is that um, what that looked like from the outside um, was actually often enacted for slightly different purposes, for domestic purposes uh, on the inside, and also that the um, the sense of liberation that we feel coming from the Soviet sexual revolution, looking at it from our perspective, um, was not what was intended by the um, by the highest policymakers and thinkers yeah. uh, at the time. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I say somewhere in the book, um, the end point of the Bolshevik sexual revolution was not the realization of the individual's uh, ability to go out there and realize herself and her individual sexual desire. Yeah. A very collectivist view, in fact, of sexuality. And the various changes that were brought in were brought in to modernize, to medicalize, and to um, collectivize sexuality yeah. for a collective purpose. Um, so, so there is 
Um, that's a, that's a, an important qualifier that I think the book argues for. So, and so far, as there is an emergence of a specific Soviet sexology after the Bolshevik Revolution, um, can you talk for a moment about how that how that stands to this idea of a collective sexuality or to collectivize this this yes. issue that you were just raising? Yes, I think that the, the um, if we talk about a Soviet sexology, it's it's there is no institute of sexology set up by the Bolsheviks after 1917. Uh-huh. But there are lots of different places where sexology, as we would recognize it, is being done. Yeah. In different institutional homes. So there are uh, criminologists who are investigating the, the deviant sexuality of, of the criminal woman, for example. Yeah. Uh, Sharon Kowalski's book, fantastic book, Deviant Women, looks at that. Um, there are, um, uh, who else have we got? We have psychiatrists who, um, uh, who imagine themselves as being able to counsel um, the good Soviet worker uh, and his wife uh, around their sexual problems and uh, who set up clinics and, and special sort of drop-in centers mm-hmm. near, near places of work. Um, where those kinds of issues can be discussed in confidence and and uh, and in great sympathy, actually. Uh, and uh, Francis Bernstein's book, The Dictatorship of Sex, looks at those mm-hmm. uh, psychiatrists. So they're practicing a different kind of psychiatry. My sort of penal uh, doctors, the, the forensic uh, doctors and forensic gynecologists and forensic uh, psychiatrists, work on a kind of uh, sub-branch, if you like, of the criminologists. Mm-hmm. They're looking for the, um, uh, the origins of sexual crime and sexual disorder in the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are trying to take some of those um, techniques and, and teachings from, sexo- from Western sexology and apply them to the cases they have in front of them, but also give them a a Marxist gloss yeah. in some fashion or other. They're also looking to, in a sense, collectivize uh, the individual um, through what they're saying. So they're, um, they exist to furnish the state and particularly the courts and the police with expertise around these issues to sort of say, well, this person is um, a sexual psychopath, mm-hmm. but he is responsible for his actions and you can... Um, uh, you can um, go ahead and, and bring him to trial mm-hmm. in confidence that he can answer for his crimes. Mm-hmm. Or they might be saying in the case of a, a female victim of uh, rape, for example, yes, this person has been raped and here are the signs and symbols of that and the indications of that um, and, um, and there is a case to answer here. Those, mm-hmm. those kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. So um, the sexology, um, in a sense, is very, uh, in, in the Soviet Union in this time period, is not a unifying discipline. Mm-hmm. It's very situational. It's very determined, I think, by the specific institutions that are doing it and the specific audiences or clients that it's mm-hmm. actually addressing. Um, and uh, my interest was um, looking at, um, if you like, clients or audiences, or really subjects, 
uh, that um, uh, are viewed without sympathy mm-hmm. or viewed as somehow um, uh, as out of the ordinary, as abnormal. Um, and I, I, I cast about for a term because I, I talk about people like the victim, women victims of rape or children victims of sexual abuse. I talk about um, sexual psychopaths, and I talk about hermaphrodites. Mm-hmm. So I have a very mixed picture there. But I, I arrived at the term sexual disorder to kind of be an umbrella term to dis- encompass all of that. Yeah, yeah. I've, let's actually talk about the specifics, aside from the fact that the, the one thing that I find really interesting here is that the institutionalization of this stops short at a real central research and training institute. But, of course, there are many other problems that Russians are dealing with at that point, so that might be one explanation. But so one of the things that you talk about in the second chapter, then, is basically the change in the age of sexual maturity. Um, and, you know, it's funny when I thought about that. On the one hand, it's such a liberal idea, but when you think about it, it can also leave uh, young people extremely vulnerable. So how does that play itself out in practice? I mean, how did the Soviet state fare with this switch of an age of consent to one that looks at sexual maturity? I think it's worth sort of explaining this a little bit more for yeah. people are listening, because uh, they really did get rid of the age of consent mm-hmm. uh, as of um, the new criminal codes of 1922. And the age of consent was what age before they got rid of uh, before, it? Before, um, it was principally in the czarist era, it was 14. And was it the same for boys as for girls? Um, essentially. Okay. Essentially. I, I, I make some qualifications around that um, in, the, uh, in the chapter. Yeah. But essentially you have um, a clear and reasonably well-known age that people can generally understand. I mean, you have to understand that this is, this is legislation that's meant to discipline populations, right? Right. People are supposed to understand uh, its function. So we get rid of, the Soviets get rid of an age of consent um, for reasons that I'll talk about in a moment, mm-hmm. and they instead enact something called um, uh, the sexual maturity standard. So a person who's reached sexual maturity can legally consent to consensual sexual activity. How do they define sexual maturity? Well, that's the whole story of the chapter. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. And, <laughs> and I will come to that. But the, um, and, and it's, it's a real mystery. Um, and someone who hasn't reached sexual maturity cannot legally consent to sexual activity. And sex with them is a crime. Yeah. Under, these leg- under this legislation. And it's, it's a law that remained in effect in Russia until 1996, which is mm-hmm. extraordinary when you think about it. And in this, incidentally, in um, all of the other uh, Soviet republics as well. And now, ex- well, ex Soviet republics all change their laws at different times. So we have this sexual maturity standard. What does it mean and how did they imagine it would work? Well, the. Um, this was an interesting case where that really caught my attention when I first started thinking about this book because it was so bizarre to me. Why mm-hmm. would you do this? And um, the uh, answer is that around the Soviet Union, first of all, you have uh, numerous different communities 
and societies. Uh, some people are living in the far north, some people are living in the south and east in, uh, in uh, warmer climates, and these scientists and doctors uh, believe that uh, women uh, uh, matured sexually uh, later in the north and earlier in the south. So first of all, they had this perception of a kind of geography of sexual maturity. Mm -hmm. uh, and note the gender as well. Mm -hmm. Gender, of course, is, is feminine. Uh, and the interest is all in the female body in this mm -hmm. sense. Um, so um, first of all, there's that geography. Secondly, there is a kind of social factor. You have certain societies within the, the newly forming Soviet Union, uh, particularly Muslim societies that condone or advance the idea of child marriage or practices mm -hmm. of child marriage or very young marriage. And so, uh, and in fact, this is another long continuity. Russian doctors from the heartland had looked at these societies well before 1917 and um, had been very displeased by the fact that what they saw was practices of child marriage, which seemed to violate the, the prospects for health for the future mother uh, and future citizen uh, uh, in, those, in those communities. So, um, so we're talking here about places like Central, uh, Central Asia, uh, like the Transcaucasian republics, uh, particularly Azerbaijan uh, in, in the south uh, of Russia, uh, of the Russian Empire, and then later the Soviet Union. So the legislators are looking at this great diversity and asking themselves, well, can one age of consent answer all these concerns? It can't. So mm -hmm. um, we are going to suggest that um, the concept of sexual maturity should simply be uh, put in the legislation instead of uh, a fixed age of consent. And then in each and every individual case where a complaint is raised or a crime is suspected, the uh, victim will be examined and uh, her or his sexual maturity or lack of it will be established by mm -hmm. a doctor. Um, so this put doctors in the hot seat, really, yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a very interesting way. Um, first of all, when they were... Uh, when this idea was being discussed in, um, uh, in inside the, um, um, uh, the Soviet justice system um, before the enactment of the criminal code, um, the, the proposal was referred to doctors, and the doctors um, were uh, were somewhat horrified by it because they they realized that there would be um, quite a can of worms there. Quite, I quite can imagine. It's not that they necessarily want this responsibility. No, they don't particularly want this responsibility, and they suspect that it will raise a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, and their thinking, I, their, their reaction is, is purely, I mean, I think from their, the sort of technical expertise side of the, of the equation, no one seems to discuss, beyond talking about how we can change these societies so they don't engage in child sexuality or don't try to exploit child sexuality. Yeah. Beyond talking about them in those terms, they never talk about how are we going to communicate this yeah. to populations. Yeah. And in fact, there never seems to have been um, an adequate explanation of this law yeah. uh, and the sexual maturity standard 
to the population at large. I have seen no evidence of that whatsoever. Very peculiar. So anyway, the doctors don't want to, to touch this, but the legislature, legislators are very determined to um, bring in this standard and to get rid of a single age of consent for the entire Russian Federation and then for the Soviet Union a little bit later. And the only reason I can um, infer, and it is an inference, it's not, it's not hard and fast knowledge, uh, that they do this is out of this um, political problem of how you um, unite together all of mm -hmm. these different um, social communities within um, Soviet Russia and how you begin to um, discipline those communities you want to change. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, um, uh, so there's a, a, a kind of central Moscow and Petersburg sort of view of the problem looking at these other societies that mm -hmm. catch up in a sense with right. European Russia. Um, so how do they imagine sexual maturity? In the earliest uh, textbooks, forensic gynecological textbooks, um, uh, I examine in, the, in that chapter, they, uh, they imagine it as a um, uh, as, as purely first menstruation. That's, that's what I suspected. Yes, that's that's the sign. That's yeah. the sign and the symbol of of uh, sexual maturity. Yeah. Now, obviously, they have difficulties if they try to imagine sexual maturity of males, and right. frankly, they seldom do. But there, I have a section about that in the chapter as well, mm -hmm. where, where uh, I did find some examples where uh, the sexual maturity of males was queried during mm -hmm. certain trials. I mean, trials of young men, very young men who had been accused of rape or of abuse mm -hmm. of, of young young people um, and those uh, and those uh, aren't very revealing frankly uh, about um, about uh, you know the, the, the level of uh, uh, thinking going on there except to say that um, when you look at the existing Soviet literature the sexological literature on the question it's quite clear that sexual maturity, um, evolved from the early 1920s to the late 1920s into a complex of factors. Mm -hmm. And they and as far as uh, women's sexual maturity was concerned, it was always physiological. So all, all the signs were on the body. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. So women's attitudes, knowledge, feelings about sexuality don't play a role in this at all. Absolutely none. Um, in fact, anything that smacks of Freudianism, the idea of the desiring woman yeah. and, her, um, and her evolving or, or emerging kind of sense of a sexual identity, anytime anyone voices that at a forensic medical conference, a forensic gynecological textbook, bang, shot down. Mm -hmm. not, it's, it's not to be. Uh, sexual maturity is a biological uh, uh, is, is principally a biological problem. If there is a, a non-biological element to it, it's social. It's given a social gloss. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's what's enshrined later on in 1934 when the definition of sexual maturity really hardens. There's a, there's a, 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 a list of instructions about it that are sent out from the center, from mm -hmm. uh, the police uh, from a committee of police and doctors who, who work on the problem. 
And um, even in the six or seven years before that point, um, the uh, leading gynecologists are saying um, it's about uh, specific anthropometric changes in the young woman's body to the point where she can bear a child, mm-hmm. uh, successfully carry a, a, you know, a, a pregnancy to term mm-hmm. and give birth to a child, then feed it and mm-hmm. then um, be able to support it adequately in our mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm. So it's that last item that really is the, uh, the social gloss mm-hmm. that in a sense collectivizes what's just been about this individual body up to mm-hmm. that. Uh, so, that's, so that's how the, the standard evolves. So can you tell what impact this change had on girls in particular? I mean, here I'm thinking both of, um, you know, the rape of young girls, but also of incest cases and those kinds of issues. There are cases like that discussed um, in, in the book um, at, at some length. I, I have to say, because this isn't a social history of rape, this isn't a social history of child abuse, I have um, not... Um, explored um, the impact on the individual victim yeah. um, in great detail. I haven't followed those stories. This is not a cultural history of, yeah. of those kinds of stories. Um, but um, they're certainly there, and the, uh, um, the overwhelming impression I have from reading the, the large number of, of cases, uh, crime cases, uh, that the, the book is based on is that it was a complete disaster. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think there's an article or even a doctorate to be written mm-hmm. about um, the social history of uh, sexual violence in Russia mm-hmm. during this period because, mm-hmm. well, there'd be lots of useful reasons for having a, a social history of sexual violence uh, against women um, in, this, in this period. But I think one of the main ones perhaps would be to Uh, look at the kind of um, cultural origins of uh, uh, of um, the, the, uh, the, the, the thousands of rapes that took place in 1945 uh, in uh, in Europe when um, Soviet soldiers uh, uh, invaded um, uh, Eastern Europe and, and uh, occupied Germany and right. other Eastern European countries. It's, it's well known that Uh, there are many thousands of rapes, uh, and um, I think knowing something about the culture uh, of masculinity and the culture of uh, relations between the genders um, on the sexual plane uh, would help us there. And Having said all of that, I mean that's not my that's not my project in this book. Yeah. I was looking for um, how these doctors uh, understood um, the the problems they were dealing with. But it's, it's, it's vastly evident that um, this was a kind of disaster um, for Soviet women and girls because at no time did the government try to explain to the male population sexual maturity. This is what it is. This is how you recognize it. And this is uh, when you may and may not approach a woman for sex. Yeah. Sense. There was there was none of that kind of clarity. Yeah. Um, and the, the forensic doctors argued again and again, uh, at least with an age standard, you have that clarity. Yeah. 
And most legal systems want a degree of clarity as right. well. So um, it allows for an awful lot of um, ambiguity, uh, injustice, I think. I think at some level, uh, Soviet women, I intuit this, I don't know this for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some level, Soviet women must have felt uh, uh, greatly let down by the justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they probably uh, expected after 1917 that mm-hmm. uh, um, cases of rape would be dealt with in a more enlightened spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, certainly many, many more were brought to um, the courts in the 1920s. But the, um, in a sense, the biologization of or the physiolo- physiological approach to um, women's sexuality that was brought to the courts by these doctors uh, had the effect of disappointing them, I think. So do you find that, I find this interesting because um, it also makes me wonder is that whether to the extent that physicians realize that this is not a happy development, whether they try to influence the outcome of these cases by the way in which they themselves approach them and testify about them. And that might lead us, I don't know whether it does, but it might lead us to talk about the way in which they take part in rape cases, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think there uh, were, their, their, their understanding of what their role was Uh, was very limited by pre-existing traditions, Mm -hmm. by the kinds of questions that police and prosecutors asked them, Mm -hmm. um, and by their their reluctance um, to uh, engage in um, language of morality in their their depositions. Their depositions um, were... uh, scrupulously objective in their terms. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they refused uh, to moralize. Mm-hmm. Uh, although, of course, the language they used and the, and the, the, um, and the uh, inclinations that they, that they showed sometimes um, obviously point to uh, a moralizing um, framework. But they, uh, but they mostly talked about signs, and particularly when we're talking about the rape of an adult. Um, uh, the uh, the woman's testimony was uh, was not something they listened to. Mm-hmm. They, looked, they looked specifically, first of all, for um, um, the rupture of the hymen. So they were looking for physical virginity as classically understood. There was no Soviet revision of um, uh, views about virginity uh, mm-hmm. in the in their view, which is a whole um, other matter to talk about. And they also looked for signs of a struggle. Mm-hmm. And those were the classic sort of indicators that they decided were uh, the things that were most relevant in in a rape case. And um, anything else was viewed as too subjective. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, going into that psychological realm uh, that uh, the doctors did not wish to probe um, because they they, uh, didn't feel it was there. Um, it was their uh, disciplinary area to to discuss. The psychological realm was for the party to discuss, was for mm-hmm. uh, social organizations and the courts to discuss. 
um, but the individual um, the individual's um, uh, evolving desire, evolving sexual desire, emerging sexual desire was not um, uh, was not relevant to the case as far as they were concerned. Mm-hmm. So uh, and so neither was her um, refusal of consent. The, the refusal of consent was the was the um, the basis, obviously, of the of even Soviet rape legislation. But the uh, the doctors felt that was for the prosecutors and the police to demonstrate. Uh, and if they could demonstrate it through uh, signs of a struggle on the body of the victim or on the body of the perpetrator, then they felt that they had done enough. Mm-hmm. That was the limits of what they were there to provide. So I don't know if you can answer this, but was it possible, and if so, under what conditions to actually convict somebody of rape? It is very difficult to answer because I'm basing I base my study on about 200 cases. Yeah. Uh, and from two disparate samples, one from Petrograd in the early 1920s, and the other from Yekaterinburg uh, in the um, late 1920s. And um, there are there are convictions and um, there are even convictions. Uh, I mean, there, there are convictions where, for example, um, the, the woman was had in the language of the time, not previously, not previously lived a sexual life. In other words, she had been a virgin. She was a virgin. Yeah. And there was clear evidence of, of, uh, of, of recent uh, damage to the hymen. Uh, the, um, uh, the more difficult cases were the ones where uh, women uh, were sexu- had been sexually active and then were unable to demonstrate through bruises or injuries on their bodies that they had put up a struggle. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, women who had, could not call on witnesses, women who didn't immediately raise, um, uh, raise a claim or raise mm-hmm. a claim, uh, uh, those women were really out of luck mm-hmm. in the justice system. I speculate on this in, at the end of the chapter about rape, that it was really um, uh, very, um, very difficult for uh, a woman to, uh, I think, get a conviction mm-hmm. on, on a claim of rape if she, was, um, if she had already been living a sexual life and if um, there was no evidence of, of violence and no witnesses. Mm-hmm. have those things brought together in a cluster, you really didn't have uh, the prospect of a sec- uh, successful conviction, mm-hmm. tragically. Mm-hmm. And even though, in one of the innovative things about Soviet rape legislation, and this is something that deserves further investigation, frankly, um, even though in the legislation it said that um, the violence could be psychological mm-hmm. rather than um, the use of, of brute physical force. The, the person could be put under the, um, uh, the, the psychological uh, duress of a perpetrator, and that um, would, would still constitute rape. Mm-hmm. And yet, prospects for demonstrating that mm-hmm. um, <coughs> were lessened because um, doctors refused to probe the psychology right. of the victim. And... Um, and there was very little listening to the victim. In fact, when you read the, uh, of course, I'm sure the same is, holds true of, of uh, American or British uh, criminological manuals 
for frontline police and investigatory staff in the 1920s and 1930s. When you read the same kind of manuals for the Soviet period, where you think there's been a sexual revolution, it makes your hair stand on you. You know, uh, uh, don't listen to their stories. Yeah. Uh, uh, be particularly suspicious if the person has previously lived a sexual life, etc., etc., etc. I quote some of those in in the book, and, and yes. fascinatingly, some of these um, some of these old saws, uh, which are inheritances from um, uh, police procedure of the 19th century, uh, some of these old saws are being parroted by women, uh, yeah. women forensic doctors. Uh, yeah. Um, Leah uh, Lightman, in particular, is 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 one I I focus on. She's the one of their uh, one of the Serato uh, forensic doctors I I, um, highlight in the book. Mm -hmm. Did quite a lot of work in forensic gynecology and forensic sexology in the middle of the 1920s in uh, in provincial Russia, and uh, uh, and even she um, repeats these ideas. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the clothing they're wearing when they come in. How fancy are they dressed? I mean, the implication mm-hmm. are they prostitutes? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they women of, of, as the Russians call it, light behavior? Mm-hmm. So, how would you then assess the impact that the move of psychiatrists into the courtroom and their participation um, at trials as expert witnesses had? Well, I was, um, I think I was surprised by this. I expected, um, when I was looking at this question, to find that psychiatrists, I knew the psychiatrists had been sort of let into the building by the Bolsheviks <laughs> <laughs> in a way that they hadn't been um, during the uh, czarist regime. During yeah. the czarist regime, they were, um, uh, uh, they were mistrusted by the authorities. Uh, psychiatrists um, uh, did uh, give testimony. Uh, and I talk a little bit about that in the, in the introduction to the chapter, and it was often manipulated and so forth. And um, uh, but they weren't routinely brought in to uh, investigate um, uh, sexual crimes, and uh, there was no sort of conception in police procedural manuals and so forth that they were uh, um, to be part of the routine yeah. of gathering after they are part of the routine of evidence gathering. And there's a distinct sense that the uh, early Bolsheviks wanted to psychiatrize the criminal, mm-hmm. to turn the criminal from a, uh, uh, a moral and a, um, uh, a social, uh, from moral problem to a social problem, uh, from an individual problem to a collective problem. Uh, mm-hmm. And that, of course, flows from the, uh, Bolshevik view of crime as something that's um, generated by class conflict, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. So, um, the, uh, so the, the psychiatrists are welcomed into um, the establishment, if you like, by the Bolsheviks. And it's very striking that the first forensic institutions that the Bolsheviks authorized to be set up are actually forensic psychiatric facilities. Um, in Moscow and in um, Petrograd, Leningrad later, um, in the still in the very early days of the of the Bolshevik regime before the civil war is over, in fact, and um, uh, and the implication is that um, a lot of criminals need psychiatric help, not um, punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the in in and so what I expected to find was a certain um, uh, indulgence of the sex criminal as someone a person who's uh, mad, not bad, as a person who's mm-hmm. sick and perhaps amenable to some form of therapy mm-hmm. than uh, someone who is uh, who's a criminal who has to be punished. And in fact, what I found was uh, more complicated than that, and and not at all like that in in effect. The um, uh, my sample didn't have a large number of cases where psychiatrists were psychiatrists were called in. We're really talking about something like 20 cases altogether, mm-hmm. where um, out of 20 out of 200 or 25 out of 200, I can't remember the precise numbers now, uh, of cases where um, psychiatrists were brought in to offer testimony, mm-hmm. um, either mostly usually about perpetrators, very occasionally about victims, but mostly about perpetrators in cases of sexual crime. And these were a very specific subset uh, of perpetrators. These was, were um, people who abused children mm-hmm. uh, in particular. Um, they, um, their uh, abuse of children uh, seemed to require some kind of explanation um, as far as the authorities were concerned. And so wherever you get a case of the exploitation of, of children, um, prepubescent children, uh, the, uh, the, there would normally be a psychiatric um, assessment, at least in the big cities. Mm-hmm. The, the beauty of my book, if you like, is that we're, we're comparing um, a major capital with a big scientific and medical infrastructure, Petrograd, against uh, a provincial uh, city of, of some substance with its own university mm-hmm. and all that other infrastructure, but not very much in the way of a more sophisticated uh, medical infrastructure, including mm-hmm. very many psychiatrists. So the um, so the style of psychiatry is practiced on on in the two samples is very different. Mm-hmm. But essentially, you get um, uh, uh, the psychiatrist working on behalf of the police in these in this small subset of cases of child abusers, and the um, uh, effect of their examination of these um, of these abusers is to confirm that they have um, what they call uh, sexually psychopathic um, uh, tendencies or, or mm-hmm. and that their um, their sexuality is perverse and um, at, but at the same time they are answerable for their crimes. Mm-hmm. It's not such uh, uh, profound uh, mental uh, illness that they deserve treatment as opposed mm-hmm. to punishment. And so they hand the problem back to um, the police and the authorities to deal with. And it's very interesting that where they use a sexual language to talk about a perpetrator's past, about their desires, about their um, inclinations, uh, and about their behavior, where they actually describe that in sexual language, um, they're almost always handing the problem back to uh, the police and the courts to deal with. In a way, of course, that makes sense because there's nothing psychiatrists can do at that point. 
Well, indeed, and I make that point as well, that there is there is very little that they can do at that point. I mean, even the most advanced and ambitious psychiatrists at the time um, are turning to people who uh, perform experiments on hormones and on yeah. the sex glands in order to um, make sort of blunt reversals of, of sexual drive or to suppress yeah. sexual drive entirely. You know, uh, at that point, um, we still have uh, people translating, uh, transplanting um, testicles and things like that. Yeah. Uh, from uh, heterosexuals to homosexuals to see if they can suppress homosexual desire. Yeah. Um, that's going on uh, in Russia and in um, Germany and elsewhere. But the um, uh, but the the idea that uh, um, psychiatry in and of itself and has has the ability to um, cure someone is is, is simply you know, they realize that they can't do that. Do you think that the police and the court had hoped differently, or do you think that psychiatrists perform exactly the role that they want them to perform? Maybe uh, this is a question you can't answer. I'm sorry. No, but it's it's an interesting question. I think that there was at at the at the highest theoretical level of thinking in in the minds of some Bolshevik legislators, legislators, and I'm thinking about people like Lenin and worked yeah. in the in the Commissariat of Justice, drafting codes and procedures around uh, uh, these issues. I think that there was an expectation that psychiatry might be able um, to uh, deliver the expertise. Yeah, if not to at least to diagnose and if and hopefully one day to correct and cure. Sure. Yeah. There's, um, it's very interesting that in the earliest days of the Bolshevik regime, um, there's an openness to Freudian psychiatry that shuts down very rapidly at the end of the 1920s. And that openness to Freudian psychiatry, psychoanalysis, comes from uh, the sponsorship of, of Trotsky, of Leon Trotsky. Mm -hmm. And once his star begins to fade, the star of, of a Soviet Freudianism also begins to fade. Mm -hmm. And I think with it, that's another strand of Soviet sexology um, that you could put into this big grab bag of, of different players in the time period um, conducting various kinds of sexology. But it, um, it also shows a kind of um, direction of travel away from the psychological and away from... Um, um, uh, what you could call the, the medicalization of these issues. Mm -hmm. um, uh, particularly, I think, in terms of the psychiatrist in, in the courtroom. By the end of the 1920s, if it wasn't clear before, it's pretty clear by then that psychiatrists in the courtroom are meant to be uh, delivering verdicts that are um, uh, assisting the uh, the police and prosecutors to get a conviction. And in fact, if they produced any kind of evidence before a trial that didn't assist in um, securing a conviction, that ed evidence would probably have been edited out mm -hmm. before the brief was presented to a mm -hmm. court. I discussed the, the procedural uh, business here. Uh, we're in a, a two-stage system of a preliminary investigation uh, by police and court investigators, and then the trial itself. And um, things don't go to trial until the brief is pretty nicely 
uh, tied up. Yeah. Preliminary investigation. And this is an old inheritance of, of uh, Russian law that goes back to the middle of the 19th century, at least, in Alexander II's great reforms. But the, um, I mean, if you think about the, um, the gloomy atmosphere in a psychological atmosphere in um, uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, where um, uh, the where the protagonist doesn't know what's going to happen to him right. the, the, the the trial, that's because he's in this strange preliminary investigation phase. I of see. And he keeps being called in for interviews to the... You know, I just read that book. That explains so much. <laughs> um, and then you find, last but not least, among all these cases, also hermaphrodites, which I found really interesting. Um, so could you talk for one brief moment about the impact that the Bolshevik Revolution and all of these changes have on them and the way that physicians see them. I mean, one of the things that I found fascinating, I talked to Elizabeth Reese a couple of weeks ago about her body, her body's endowed book about the history of hermaphrodites in the US. Um, and one of the things that really struck me about your chapter is the fact that they are there in the first place. So tell us about hermaphrodites. Well, the, no one's really written about them in, in Russian history. It's quite, yeah. strange, quite strange. And um, I, um, I got interested in this because it has been um, a, a big topic in history of sexuality and history of gender studies right. in the last 15 years or so. And um, this seemed an appropriate book, even though these people weren't sort of entering courts and being examined by forensic doctors. This seemed an appropriate place to discuss their their challenge to the sexual order. Yeah. The Soviets were trying to build. And what was the sort of legal position? Up until um, 1926, Russia had no law about the hermaphrodite. Whatsoever. Yeah. So up until that point, uh, Russian authorities before the revolution and immediately after it um, improvised whenever they ran into one. And... Um, Normally, they would um, detect hermaphrodites through various kinds of mass physical screenings. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> the annual examination of, uh, of young peasant males of a certain uh, age who were uh, to be recruited into the army, for example, okay. yeah. that always threw up a handful of cases and yeah. some of those got written up in the medical journals if they were sufficiently interesting. And um, that was a disqualifier for being um, uh, recruited into the, the Tsarist army. Mm -hmm. The uh, other major mass screening was actually the mass screening of um, uh, prostitutes, licensed prostitutes. Hmm. Prostitution was licensed in the Russian Empire from the 1840s until 1917. And um, there was a system of medical inspection and um, that occasionally as well would throw up cases of, uh, of hermaphrodites um, uh, presenting as women and, mm -hmm. and offering their services. So um, th those are two, two locuses where you might have expected some kind of systematic sort of 
uh, view of the hermaphrodite, but there's really nothing codified. One of my um, important protagonists in the book, um, uh, uh, who is uh, the leader of the forensic uh, medical services uh, for the entire Russian Federation um, in the early days of the, uh, uh, the Soviet regime, uh, Yakov Leibovich, um, uh, argues, he's a, he's a forensic gynecologist by training, mm-hmm. Uh, he argues that um, the new regime needs some kind of systematic approach to this problem. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a problem um, uh, of, um, of uh, passport sex, call it that. Okay. So that it's a problem for the authorities in terms of identifying whether this person fits under the, the male gender box or the female gender box. Right. And he argues... Um, following um, German and, and other authorities from, from Western Europe, that um, the forensic medical expert should be the person who has the sort of final say about yeah. the prevailing sex in yeah. this body. And he actually persuades the um, Soviet regime and the identity tracking authorities, the, the People's Commissariat of Internal Affairs, to... Um, an act, uh, uh, an ordinance whereby the, the forensic medical expert can make that determination. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the person's passport documents and other documents can be changed. That's, an, that's enacted in 1926. So you have that kind of possibility where, some, where uh, a person's passport sex can be changed. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's the situation um, that the Bolshevik Revolution brings. And I think mm-hmm. that the, um, the authorities are persuaded by that because it's scientific, mm-hmm. particularly um, bewildering problem that um, Marx hasn't anticipated, uh, Engels doesn't have an answer for, <laughs> uh, you know, even August Babel couldn't think of what to do, I suppose. And, and there is a, a, a sense in which this is a, you know, a clear case where medicine can provide an answer and has already had that ability to provide an answer in more advanced countries like Germany. So that's the, that's the rationale behind that. And then, um, but in fact, tracking, um, tracking those um, passport changes of sex would be an enormous job for the historian to try and do because it would mean trawling through local archives of the identity, uh, the birth, deaths, and marriages record service yeah. in, in Russia, and, um, and looking for such changes, such very infrequent changes yeah. in passport sex. So that was not the route I chose to uh, pursue. And instead, it was much easier to look for case histories of hermaphrodite mm-hmm. in the literature, in fact, I was very fortunate. There's um, uh, uh, a poorly resourced but marvelous library in Moscow, a medical a scientific library mm-hmm. in Moscow. And um, like most scientific libraries, they regard their older literature as kind of superfluous. Mm-hmm. And they, um, they hide its catalogs uh, away in a different section because it's... Um, 
it's it's ancient knowledge. It's not really useful knowledge anymore. But yeah. they did actually have um, a subdivision of their medical catalog uh, for hermaphrodites for the pre-war uh, period. For the pre. That's really interesting in itself. It was it was marvelous. It was a small yeah. catalog, and it was actually a catalog um, uh, that listed where the articles were and, and yeah. So we were able to call them up and um, assemble um, a database of something like 35 hermaphrodites, mm-hmm. this uh, 1920s to 1930s period. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I made a study of the practices that are described in the articles of uh, how the doctors um, understood their role, how the doctors tried to help, what sort of treatments they offered, uh, what sort of treatments they uh, they found successful, unsuccessful, what approaches, and so on. So I was, again, trying to focus very much on practices and reading mm-hmm. those practices as some kind of uh, indication of what they thought about the sexual revolution or how they interpreted the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. So what did I find? I found, I, I, first of all, I chose to screen out infants, um, hermaphrodites, and um, uh, and look at adults, because I really wanted to look at um, this problem of sexual psychology and the problem of sexual behavior and how mm-hmm. that's interpreted by the doctors. Um, so that's a kind of uh, a caveat to, to begin with. I found that the, um, the doctors were able to, first of all, discuss the sexual psychology of these patients really openly. Mm-hmm. in the medical literature uh, in the 1920s and even into the 1930s when other aspects of sexual psychology had been shut down mm-hmm. um, completely. Freudianism uh, thrown overboard after Trotsky is exiled uh, and um, the uh, sexual revolutionary discourse associated with Alexander Kollontai and with the World League for Sexual Reform that the uh, Soviets had been active in is also rejected after 1930, 31. Um, and so even in the 1930s, these doctors are able to publish discussions of sexual behavior and sexual response and sexual psychology among these special subjects because they are so special. And it seems to me that in part that's because of their um, physiological abnormality. And I mean, mm-hmm. Um, inverted commas there, uh, that their um, uh, that their um, abnormality is something that licenses the discussion of um, sexual response. Mm-hmm. And what I what I found as well was that the doctors were by and large uh, open to um, the uh, idea of uh, changing the body to conform to a socially presented gender. Mm-hmm. So if they felt that it, was, that it would be successful, they were quite happy to um, uh, make alterations, cosmetic alterations mm-hmm. at that time, uh, to the body in order that the person should uh, present and perform successfully as a female um, or as a male. And here socially present means the gender that the person had adopted prior to this medical interaction, which is really interesting. So it's not that they came and said, oh, 
we suddenly you discover you're the other gender and you should change. Many of these cases are um, are self-referrals by hermaphrodites who are experiencing problems in their sexual life. Interesting. Okay. So they actually are the ones who come and seek help. That's right. That's right. So mm-hmm. they, again, represent a subset. There are more yeah. hermaphrodites out there, obviously, yeah. uh, but they're um, suffering in silence. Yeah. Or they're, or they're perfectly happy with the yeah. way they are. They, they um, have, have some kind of modus vivendi. But yeah. these uh, these individuals, uh, often I think because of social interactions or because of a, a failed marriage or a tottering marriage, um, want help, uh, particularly help to perform sexually. Yeah. Um, but also some of them are just confused about changes in their body and, yeah. and, and, and they know through comparison with uh, uh, people of, of the, the putative gender they live within that... Um, that they're different. Yeah. So they, they and, and I, I did um, establish that many of these um, subjects had actually referred themselves to doctors previously. That, mm-hmm. um, you know, the the, uh, the case history that I might have found in the library um, was uh, the last in a line of um, uh, encounters with medicine that mm-hmm. these individuals had had. Mm-hmm. Um, or one of the few that had been written up. In other mm-hmm. So <clears throat> it was, it was, and almost in all of these cases, because they're published, there often is a discussion of um, the therapies that have been used. And those were usually some combination of surgery, cosmetic or corrective surgery, again, inverted commas, and um, sometimes the use of hormones, sex hormones, in a kind of experimental way. Uh, to see if the um, polarity, the gender polarity of the body could be reversed mm-hmm. or, or cemented in a particular mm-hmm. direction. So to kind of step back then, what would you say is the long-lasting impact of the Bolshevik sexual revolution? Well, I think that what I was trying to um, discover, as I said at the beginning of this interview in, in the book, was to... Um, try to find a different way to get at the sexual revolution that yeah. took during the 1920s. And I thought that was, um, that was possible to do um, through looking at doctors and their practices. Because doctors were one part of this larger section of the Russian intelligentsia that wanted a sexual revolution, or at least uh, many people uh, within the radical and within the kind of... Um, uh, uh, the professional classes in Russia before the revolution said they wanted changes to the relations between the sexes. And so I wanted to see, uh, I thought it would be possible to look at the sexual revolution through their activities in a very concrete way and um, compare and contrast that with what we think about the sexual revolution because we have this romanticized maybe mm-hmm way feminist view that comes from uh, our 1960s and 70s rereading of Alexander Kollontai and Wilhelm mm-hmm. that there is a, um, just a flourishing of, of anything goes in the Soviet Union at this time. And I think I've, I've demonstrated in this book that the sexual revolution was not about anything goes. Mm-hmm. Not, it was not the 1970s or the 1960s um, in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. 
very different kind of sexual revolution and one that was really very technocratic mm -hmm. uh, in a certain perspective and also quite prescriptive and um, and had a very gendered sense mm -hmm. how um, bodies should function and about the place of the different the two genders in a two-sexed order and in a, even in a socialist society of the future. Mm -hmm. So, in, a, in one of the, the major conclusions I make is when people talk about the sexual revolution in, in Bolshevik Russia, they often talk about a kind of uh, liberal 1920s when everything, when anything goes, and a more conservative 1930s when Stalin begins to close things down. And Stalinists begin to close things down and a more conservative mm -hmm. gender order appears to obtain. And I am trying to say that, um, in fact, what's happening in the 1930s has a lot of continuity in, from the 1920s. Mm -hmm. That doctors and experts are contributing to a, a conservative gender order that is uh, being reconstructed uh, mm -hmm. even after the um, uh, Civil War in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my last question is, you know, the kind of evolution. What is it that you're working on now? What has this led you to? Well, um, working closely with uh, medicine and law made me um, very conscious of the uh, that interface between doctors and police and prisons. Yeah. And, um, I uh, am now working on a study of Uh, doctors in uh, the gulag, in Stalin's mm -hmm. camps. Mm -hmm. so, um, I've been working on that for a number of years now, and I've gathered um, quite a lot of material um, with the help of, of uh, particularly Kirill Rossianov in the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm looking to publish a book one day on, um, the, uh, on uh, gulag hospitals and medicine. Um, so that's um, uh, that's that's what I'm working on now. I can't wait for that book and for another interview. And I have to thank you so much for being on this show. Oh, thank you very much. We have been talking to Dan Healy, author of Bolshevik Sexual Forensics, Diagnosing Disorder in the Clinic and Courtroom 1917-1939, to published by Northern Illinois University Press in 2009. I am Johanna Schön, co-host of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies. Please join us next time.